if you have children, uh, junior high or high school, you hopefully got an email this week. Uh, I am going to be dealing with some sexually explicit material, uh, and if you'd like to make sure that uh, your kids don't hear that, uh, now is the time to send them away. Um, Cassie, I think, is going to have them help out uh, with Children's Church. Secondly, if you don't have a note sheet, that means you probably don't have a bulletin. Uh, bulletins are stuffed in the note sheets now, so um, if you'd like to grab one, uh, that's where it, where it is. But uh, why don't we all stand up and let's read uh, from the book of Esther. This is Esther 2, uh, 5 to 18. Today's message is uh, behind the scenes of The Bachelor. Uh, I'm not the first to notice this, but yeah, this, this story looks a lot like uh, The Bachelor. We'll see that in a second. But let's, uh, let's read it together, um, starting in verse 5. In Shushan the citadel, there was a certain Jew whose name was Mordecai, the son of Jair, son of Shimei, son of Kish, a Benjamite. Kish had been carried away from Jerusalem with the captives who had been captured with Jeconiah, the king of Judah, whom Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, had carried away. This just means that uh, Mordecai's people have been uh, uh, carried away for a long time. It's been a long time since his people have been in Jerusalem. And Mordecai had brought up Hadassah, that is Esther, his uncle's daughter, for she had neither father nor mother. The young woman was lovely and beautiful. When her father and mother died, Mordecai took her as his own daughter. So it was, when the king's command and decree were heard, uh, and we'll talk a little about what that was from last week, and when many young women were gathered at Shushan the citadel under the custody of Hegai, that Esther also was taken to the king's palace into the care of Hegai, the custodian of the women. He's a eunuch who takes care of the, of the ladies in the, uh, in the harem. Now the young woman pleased him, this is Esther, and she secured his faithful commitment. So he readily gave beauty preparations to her in addition to choice foods. And then seven choice maidservants were provided just for her from the king's palace. And he moved her and her maidservants to the best place in the house of the women. Esther had not revealed her people or family, the Jewish people, for Mordecai had charged her not to reveal it. And every day Mordecai paced in front of the court of the women's quarters to learn of Esther's welfare and what was happening to her. Each young woman's turn, uh, Esther is one of many, many virgins who've been secured from all over the empire, and each young woman's turn came to go into King Ahasuerus after she had completed 12 months preparation according to the regulations for the women. For thus were the days of their preparation appointed, six whole months of oil and myrrh treatments. Uh, that's, yeah, that's, that's massage and whatnot. And six months with perfumes and preparations for beautifying women, cosmetics. Thus prepared, each young woman went to the king, and she was given whatever she desired to take with her from the women's quarters, uh, it's clothes really, to the king's palace. In the evening she went, and in the morning she returned to the second house of the women, a separate harem, to the custody of Shashgaz, the king's eunuch who kept the concubines. You might even read secondary wives. She would not go into the king again unless the king delighted in her. And called for her by name. Now when the turn came for Esther, the daughter of Abihil, the uncle of Mordecai, who had taken her as his daughter to go into the king, she requested nothing but what Haggai, the king's eunuch, the custodian of the women, advised. And Esther obtained favor in the sight of all who saw her. So Esther was taken to King Ahasuerus, into his royal apartments, in the tenth month, which is the month of Tebet, in the seventh year of his reign, the king loved Esther more than all the other women, and she obtained grace and faithful commitment in his sight more than all the other virgins. So he set the royal crown upon her head 
and made her queen instead of Vashti. Then the king made a great feast, the feast of Esther, for all his officials and servants. And he proclaimed a holiday in the provinces and gave gifts according to the generosity of a king. You may be seated. Yeah, we've heard this story before. You know how it goes. Mm-hmm, yep. One special night, you know, uh, a chance to woo, a chance to... A girl from nowhere, from humble means, has one opportunity uh, with the king. There's one glass sip, slipper that fits. Just one person, and you might even think of this as a metaphor in Cinderella, as only a, a, there's a perfect fit for Prince Charming. And, and it's this girl... And he, and he sees that with the glass, the, the glass slipper, that Cinderella comes from nowhere and is a perfect fit for him. And of course, she of humble means ends up as his bride and as the queen of the country. And moreover, we even, uh, as I mentioned earlier, have a little bit of this in our contemporary culture. Um, we've got uh, week to week, uh, we see um, The Bachelor. And uh, this one, I think, is Juan Pablo. So if we can bring Juan up. Yeah, there he is. Mm-hmm. There's Juan Pablo. Uh, I think he was a soccer player. These are the 25 beautiful ladies uh, from whom Juan Pablo uh, had to select. Uh, I th- what is, the next one is just a, a glory shot of him. They, they try to find a bachelor who's, a, who's more or less approximated to the, uh, the physical appearance of uh, Pastor Neil. Um, that's sort of their selection criteria. And you'll notice, you'll notice he's got a little rose in his hand. That rose is very important. Um, if you haven't seen the show, basically, uh, that rose is like the glass slipper, right? It's like, so at the end of every episode, you eliminate <laughs> some ladies. They haven't pleased him, and they're, they're carted off. But the ones who have pleased him, he gives a, a red rose to. Uh, finally, it gets down to three contestants. And from those three contestants, one, and I think this is Nikki, uh, gets the diamond ring, and they're married. This is a show about a guy uh, finding his wife. There's 25 beautiful ladies, uh, one handsome bachelor, and from that, he, uh, he finds the love of his life. If you don't know about the show, um, from what I understand, their track record isn't great. Uh, a number of these, of these marriages either fail to take place or don't last um, although, from what I understand, a few have. So that's, that's The Bachelor. That's going on um, a, oh, Monday nights on ABC, 7 o'clock, in case you, <laughs> in case you want to check it out. Uh, any, any Bachelor fans here? I'm going to take a shot you know, a little bit at you during the course of this sermon. Um, it, it's okay. I have people in my family who are, uh, who are fans of The Bachelor. Um, but, I, you know, it, it really is an interesting idea. It's an interesting show. And it's really even kind of interesting when you, you think about Esther... Um, through the, the, the light of The Bachelor. Uh, there's, a, there's a writer for Slate.com. She's a TV critic and also an advocate for, uh, for women. And she has a, pre- a pretty interesting take on The Bachelor. Mom, if you could um, go to the next slide. Uh, we have uh, some quotes for her. But on the surface, Cinderella and The Bachelor, they are romantic, right? It's this beautiful story. A girl from nowhere with, with few opportunities is suddenly whisked away to the palace and she becomes the queen, uh, just like we have in Esther. And yet, we kind of wonder what might be going on behind the scenes. And this is particularly for us as savvy, you know, media-saturated people. We recognize that what we get, the editing and the whatnot of, of, of TV shows, it, it's, it's meant to conceal. And so there's this interesting... Uh, Interesting thing that Will Paskin uh, from Slate.com has uh, this to say about uh, The Bachelor. She says, The Bachelor presents itself, this is the way The Bachelor wants you to look at it, as romantic. 
uh, out to find a good man, a life partner, a soulmate, a true love, all while behaving like a pimp. This show assembles a harem of attractive women who attempt to woo one man, not just with their charm, but their bodies, their insecurity, and their willingness to suppress any part of their personality that might make them seem difficult. In particular, their innate discomfort that this man is availing himself of numerous other women as he, seeks, as he speaks to each of them about feeling a real connection. To distract from the ickiness of this setup, The Bachelor plays the prude, only ever speaking of sex in the most coded, vague terms, like a pimp who blushes at the word vagina and claims his clientele are just playing cards. Typically, The Bachelor's resemblance to an unusually public escort service is kept under wraps until late in the season, when The Bachelor has narrowed the field down to three suitors, or suitorettes. They are then invited, or not invited, as sometimes apparently takes place, to spend the night with The Bachelor in a fantasy suite, an evening in a romantic, usually tropical location where the cameras will finally leave these two people alone to get up to whatever they want to get up to. Having one off-camera sexual encounter with a person who may soon give you a grapefruit-sized engagement ring seems like a good idea. But in practice, it means a man has sex with three women three evenings in a row and professes his deep and romantic feelings to each one of these women, all of whom are fearful of behaving in a way he might not like. Paskin uh, portrays The Bachelor as sexual exploitation. Uh, she, I think she goes a little bit over the top, but she basically shows women being coerced into a situation that, as you saw, she calls it sexually icky. I want to pull that back just a little bit because what goes on in The Bachelor is voluntary. I mean, people are not, it's not as though, as actually happens in Esther, uh, the king goes out and like just selects girls and you know, brings them in. That's not what's happening uh, in Esther. Uh, the, the Bachelor is entirely voluntary. It's interesting that it's our cultural context. It's our particular situation in the United States of America in 20, I guess the Bachelor started in 2001, so for the last 14 years, that makes this setup desirable for both the audience and the participants. And so given, given Paskin's critique, I just want to bring up four disturbing aspects of this fairy tale romantic show, The Bachelor. These are uh, in, your, in your note sheets. And I want you to think about these critiques that Paskin brings up as we go through, again, uh, the story that we just read about Esther as Cinderella. Es- Esther is becoming the queen. And think about maybe what lies behind or underneath the scenes of... Uh, I saw one video on the internet, The Bachelor Royal Edition. You know, they make a little video of Esther. But the first is that uh, the contestants in The Bachelor are expected to suppress their true personalities. Now, to uh, suppress their true personalities. Now, to some extent, that's just the nature of dating, right? Um, have you, if, if you've ever been on the prowl, uh, you know that the last thing you want to do is be yourself. That whole thing in Aladdin where, where like, the genie's like, be yourself, that's nonsense. Uh, anybody who meets you and gets to know the real you is not going to want to marry you. So I, I, I'm, with, I'm with, in some sense, that, uh, that, that that's just a part of, of you know, romantic attraction uh, in general. We're all placing and projecting our desires and beliefs on this person. And yet, you can see, though, that in The Bachelor, specifically, it gets to the next level of suppression. Because you're in competition 
There's other girls who are, you know, trying to get after this one guy. And so it's very, very important to totally suppress your true personality so that you've got a shot. Another disturbing aspect of The Bachelor, sex is expected of a succession of women by The Bachelor. Sex is expected of a succession of women by The Bachelor. This is a little strange. And it might not even be just The Bachelor, but presumably the audience as well. I mean, who doesn't like to see some drama, right? We can't, and forget the fact that it's real people we're talking about here in real lives, but that's, that's something that's going on. And the way the show is set up is it's set up to make these expectations without um, necessarily enforcing them. So uh, apparently there's been a number of times where girls have made it to the top three, and they've been invited into the fantasy suite, and because of their sometimes religious convictions, uh, they say, you know what, I'm just going to keep it, I'm going to keep it cool, and you can take it or leave it. And which gets that, la- that last thing, the entire show is presented, presented as if it is romantic, when in a lot of ways, it's actually exploitative. It's presented as if it's romantic when it's actually exploitative. And then I think probably the most disturbing for me is that our culture has come to a place where it's the idea of participating in a contest like The Bachelor is portrayed as desirable. Um, and I think this is for a number of reasons. From what I understand, a lot of the, the women and men who participate in, it's not just The Bachelor. There's The Bachelorette, which is like the opposite. There's 25 guys, one girl. There's also The Bachelor in Paradise. A lot of spinoffs here, very popular uh, TV show. Um, it's interesting. I think that a lot of the people who want to do this is they're trying to start like maybe a TV career. They want to become celebrities, personalities, that kind of thing. So there's a lot of different aspects that go into why someone would want to do this. But it's interesting to me. It's interesting that, um, that this is something we, we apparently desire. Okay, so here's the four, those are the four cr- critiques. And hopefully we've seen that maybe, um, maybe there's a little more going on behind the scenes in this story than we originally thought. Okay, when we first read it, it, it really does come off as Cinderella. Now, let's, let's take a look. Let's peel back, let's peel back the, the page and let's, let's reread it, noting, um, with these critiques in mind, to note some of the maybe more disturbing elements in Esther 2, in the beauty contest. So. In Shushan the Citadel, there was a certain Jew whose name was Mordecai. Good name! Erin uh, says that she just recently started talking about the third child. Um, I'm categorically against it. Two is already too, too many. Um, but I don't have a whole lot of say here. I'm a willing participant in what goes on. So, so she, uh, she, she's in control. If it's a boy, she wants to go with Mordecai. Why is that name interesting? Um, Mom, go to the next slide. And Mordecai had brought up Hadassah, that is Esther, um, his uncle's daughter, for she had neither father nor mo- mother, and the young woman was lovely and beautiful. Interesting, do you notice that the adjectives were, were given about Esther? Esther was um, really talented and charming. <laughs> Esther, Esther was a, an amazing conversationalist. Uh, Esther was really, really good um, at crafting, at developing, creating things uh, for herself. She was a, a fantastic athlete. Did you get any of that, or did you get young and beautiful? Yeah, okay. Let's go to the next slide. Mordecai. Why is that interesting? Well, Mordecai is a, uh, is a the name is, it's a Hebraized Hebrew form of the word Marduk. Marduk is a Babylonian god. A Babylonian god of um, uh, water and uh, sometimes fertility, judgment. 
um, but he's a foreign pagan god. And this guy Mordecai, a Jew, has a pagan god's name. Esther, uh, which really we get Easter from that, is named after Ishtar, a Babylonian and Assyrian goddess. A goddess of what, you might ask? Fertility. Sex. That's her name. She walks around all day uh, in, in Susa with the name of a sex goddess. Um, that's a little weird. Now we notice, we noticed in the text that her, her name is Hadassah. She has a Hebrew name, and presumably Mordecai does as well. He probably has, we don't know what it is, but he probably has a Jewish name that, go, that, that, that he uses. But uh, the two of them are named after foreign gods. Uh, now this is not something that Jews normally do. We have a, a Messianic Jew in our congregation, uh, I don't think he's here today, but Elias. Elias, it, the Hebrew underneath his name, means my God is Yahweh. Eli, God, or my God, and Os, which is a form of Yah, like Elijah. Elias is a version of the name Elijah, Yahweh. My God is Yahweh. That's Elias' name. That's how Jews normally name their people. They name them based on uh, you know, who God is and what God has done. And yet in this text, we already see that our heroes, our hero and our her- heroine, are living in a world where they are named after foreign gods and goddesses. The Jews in Susa have taken foreign names. Now, granted, part of this is it helps them avoid persecution. Uh, when you come into a culture that's not yours, it is, it is a good thing to lay low, especially if your particular, uh, who you are is something that will be uh, not pleasant for the culture that you're in. It's good to lay low. And so part of what's going on here, are they're using foreign names to avoid persecution. But, and as we noted, these names are basically idolatrous. And the divine beings they name are still worshipped in Esther's day. These are not old gods from long ago. Okay, These gods are being worshipped in the town, in Susa. And those are the names that we get for our hero and our heroine. Let's move forward a little bit. So it was, when the king's command and decree was heard, and when many young women were gathered at Shushan the citadel, just backing up here, last week we, we talked a little bit about this, but basically um, Xerxes, or Ahasuerus, he sends, all of, he sends people to go out and appoint commissioners in every district of the empire to find and gather up young, very good-looking women. Um, the question, of course, is you know, how much say did they have in being part of this contest? Well, I think it's very likely that in a lot of cases they had zero say. In a lot of cases, if you remember the being of Braveheart, uh, you know, Braveheart's marrying this girl or whatever, and um, the king just comes and says, nope, she's mine. That very well may be happening in a lot of these situations. Not probably in all, uh, because if you imagine, if you're a minority group in an empire, it sure would be nice to have, uh, you know, one of your people up high at the top. So it's very possible that some people are putting young women out there to be a part of this because it's going to gain you power and influence. I mean, you know, who wouldn't want to have a daughter become a queen? That would be really good for you, right? Uh, so they're gathered at Shushan, the, the citadel, under the custody of Haggai. Uh, Haggai is the king's eunuch who's in charge of the ladies. That Esther also was taken into the king's palace, into the care of Haggai, the custodian of the women. Now the young woman pleased him, and she secured his faithful commitment. So he readily gave beauty preparations to her in addition to choice foods. Then seven choice maidservants were provided for her. She gets these excellent ladies. I think what we kind of get from this is, we, we notice, and you can go to the next slide, um, 
that Esther wants to win this, this contest. Esther is in it to win it, as they say. Uh, you notice that wherever she goes, and it happens first with Haggai, but eventually we'll find out that everybody loves her. Whatever it is that she's doing, she is gaining a lot of fans. Um, this might remind you of the Hunger Games, uh, where in the Hunger Games, these kids are put in this terrible situation where they're out to kill each other, but they're doing it for the cameras, and so they're gaining kind of like popularity as they go through this awful circumstance. Something similar appears to be going on with Esther. She's, she's in a situation that's probably not great, um, and yet, and yet, she's out there to win it. She's securing the faithful commitment of Haggai. I, I put that in brackets. I said faithful commitment. If you use your pew Bibles, the NKJV, it's going to say something like favor. Well, that's not a great translation. This happens only twice in Esther, but throughout the whole test, Old Testament, the Hebrew word underlying that word that NKJ translates um, favor is hased, which we've talked about a number, one, a number of times in church. This is the faithful, committed, loving kindness of God to his people in Israel. That's how it's used all throughout the, the Old Testament. Um, you might remember in uh, the psalm where it says, uh, your, um, your uh, mercy is everlasting. That's hased. You uh, love us forever. That's Hesed. It's this kind of uh, you know gritty, never give up, never quit kind of love, kind of commitment. And it's almost always in the Old Testament, God to Israel. And how interesting! How interesting of the two places in Esther where it talks about someone's commitment to Esther. It uses this word. Um, the last thing we notice, I, I put uh, in brackets. Um, that she received the choice foods. Uh, this is, there's an, in NKJV, it'll say her allowance. That is not a good translation. It's, uh, it's based on um, the LXX, the Septuagint, Greek translation of the Old Testament. The actual word there is translated all throughout Esther and all throughout the Old Testament as choice foods. Now, why did they change that in the NKJV? Why did they say allowance? Well, because this is icky, right? She receives the best food, but the best food in Susa is not kosher. Now, that might not matter much to us, but that matters very, very much to faithful Jews. Faithful Jews think it is absolutely critical never to violate the food laws that God has given them. They don't eat pork, and there's a bunch of other different things. I mean, you can't, there's certain ways of cooking and, and, and contamination. Esther throws all that out the window. She's treated to the delicacies of the empire, and she eats them. That should be another kind of warning sign to us. Not only is she named after a foreign goddess, a sex goddess, but also she's now clearly uh, partaking in the various foods. Let's go on. Esther uh, had not revealed her people or family, for Mordecai had charged her not to reveal it. And every day Mordecai paced in front of the court of the women's quarters to learn of Esther's welfare and what was happening to her. He sounds like a good dad. Or does he? Mordecai directly commands Esther to make sure that no one knows she is uh, Jewish. That does not mean just don't say you're Jewish. That means a lot of things. It means she must abandon the food laws like we just talked about. She must also abandon the hope of a marriage to a faithful Jew, which is a big deal in the, Jew, in the, in the Old Testament. In fact, we have, uh, roughly contemporary to this, Ezra presides over a mass divorce of people who have taken, for, in Jerusalem, of, of men who have taken foreign wives. The idea of being unequally yoked is a big deal to the Jews. And yet, Mordecai says, just keep your mouth shut, and if you end up with a king as a, as a husband, it, who cares if he's a, if he's a pagan? 
Next, she must abandon laws of cleanliness. Uh, cleanliness not only in contact with people who are uh, not Jewish and don't follow the food laws, but also, let's be honest, in sex. Uh, there are a lot of rules about sex in the Old Testament. And that's the last one. She has to abandon them. The sexual mores of the Jews have to be just tossed aside if she's going to obey Mordecai, her kinsman redeemer. Um, I've put a little tilde there to kinsman redeemer. He's not technically a kinsman redeemer. A kinsman redeemer is a a special role that um, Jews are to take for their family members. Usually it's uh, when a woman's husband has died, the husband's closer relations will take her as a wife um, to protect her, to make sure that she's um, physically and and materially provided for, and also to give the husband an heir. So whatever children she had with her dead husband will be raised with her dead husband's name by a kinsman redeemer. This is not exactly the situation with with Esther, although it's interesting that uh, some Jewish translators of this text into Greek call Mordecai or say that Mordecai has taken her not as a daughter, but as a wife. And the reason they're doing that is they're trying to make us think that, well, what Mordecai's doing is something like a kinsman redeemer. He's protecting Esther. They're trying to clean it up, clean up the story. But that's not what it says. It says he's taken her as a daughter, and yet he commands her to abandon all of these primal Jewish uh, religious commands. Uh, We're going to get a little uh, text here about the, the actual contest in verse 14. It says, uh, in the evening she went, and in the morning she returned to the second house of the women, to the custody of Shashgaz, the king's eunuch who kept the concubines. And she, this is any girl, this isn't just Esther, she would not go into the king again, unless the king delighted in her and gave her a rose. Oh, I'm sorry, uh, and called for her by name, whatever. Um, What this means yeah, it means that uh, a succession of all the good-looking girls in the empire um, are given one shot, one night. And it's not a night of dancing, like in Cinderella. Um, it's a night of sex. And after the king has satisfied himself sexually, he um, you know, kicks her out, sends her back to like a, where the, his secondary wives or concubines uh, stay. And you know, she sits there and waits. Uh, I haven't, I've only seen like one partial episode of The Bachelor, but from what I understand, uh, during the rose-giving ceremony, it, there's a lot of anxiety, right? Because there's 25, and then 10, and then 4, and then 3 girls. And they're sitting there, oh, am I going to get a rose? Am I going to get called back on the show? Does he really love me? I suggest to you that's, um, well, it makes me uncomfortable uh, that, that this is the kind of situation we're putting these girls in where they're um, you know, waiting for him to call, as it were. And think about this. You know, look, all right, you, you don't win The Bachelor. You can't convince this guy that you know, you're the one. That's okay. You can go back to your normal life, right? Presumably, you're good-looking, so you've got some future here in the United States of America um, that you can you know, go do. Yeah, that's not the case for the women in Susa. If the king doesn't call you back, you spend the rest of your life in the secondary harem 
the secondary quarters for the, for the women, and, and, and you grow old there, and you die there. Now, it's probably better than you know, being out on the street uh, looking for food. You'd at least be taken care of, but, but surely, um, surely we would hope that, that people would do better than that. Let's keep going. Uh, verse 15. Now, when the turn came for Esther, the daughter of Abihel, the uncle of Mordecai, who had taken her as his daughter, to go into the king, she requested nothing but what Haggai, the king's eunuch, the custodian of the women, advised. And Esther obtained favor in the sight of all who saw her. She's savvy, this one. So Esther was taken to King Ahasuerus into his royal apartments in the tenth month, which is in the month of Tebet, in the seventh year of his reign. The king loved Esther more than all the other women, and she obtained grace and faithful commitment in his sight more than all the virgins. Um, what's going on here is that because uh, Esther is sort of Haggai the eunuch's favorite, um, she's obtained his hesed, she takes, that is, wears only what he ad- advises, suggests. He's kind of like, sort of, he's like, you know, giving her an, an edge. It's as though on The Bachelor, one of the girls gets to know the producer, or maybe the bachelor's best friend, and starts getting a little bit of advice whispered in her ear off camera. That's kind of what's going on with Esther. She gets a little bump, a little help. Uh, Haggai knows Xerxes, that's Ahasuerus or Xerxes, tastes. And this is interesting. Those are the only tastes that matter in this situation. It's not as though Haggai's like, Esther, are you kidding me? Just do your thing. You're great, girl. You're perfect just the way you are. You go and be yourself. Go, go just wow the king with who you are. No, 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 no. He's like, mm, not that, this. This is Xerxes, my man we're talking about here, and he's the target. This isn't about you expressing yourself, sweetheart. This is about him getting what he wants. Notice uh, that the author emphasizes Mordecai's paternal care. It, it goes out of its way to, remember, to help us remember that Mordecai has taken him or taken her as his daughter. This indicates to us that they're on board for all of this. They're not doing this. Um, this isn't something that they're seeing as icky or uncomfortable. Or if it is, they've suppressed that and they are in favor of this. This indicates to us probably that Mordecai uh, really wants Esther to win it. He really wants her to, to get this position to be the queen. Why? Because it's going to give him influence. If his wife is the queen, he's going to have the ear of the queen. And we're going to see as the story plays out, that's exactly what happens. And he's willing. He's willing. doesn't even give a second thought to giving up all of the Jewish relig- religiosity that that's going to cost. The author notes that Esther's winning ways secure the same kind of faithful commitment that is hesed from the king that she wins from Haggai. It's fascinating. One night. One night with this girl. And it's difficult to say how, how it happens. Although... Um, it's very probable that when they're giving the description of you know, the six months of massage treatment and the six months of cosmetics, that one of the things that's being left unsaid is that they're also probably telling these girls how to do sex well. Um, it's not something that comes totally natural. I mean, sort of natural, but it's, you know, there's whatever. And uh, so probably that's, that's going on. So Esther's being coached as are all these other girls. That's why she probably gets seven choice maidservants um, who can give her advice and make her not only appear uh, desirable, but also um, be uh, 
Good. Whatever it is that she did, good, bad, indifferent, Esther comes away with the faithful, loving commitment of the king. It doesn't, we don't know exactly what that looks like. I mean, I imagine probably that you know, she found ways to um, entertain him and delight him um, because she was a winning person. Uh, but it doesn't tell us. It only tells us the result. And so we're left, I think, with four disturbing questions for the book of Esther. Um, I'm going to list out the questions, and then I'm going to give some provisional, maybe, uh, responses, some things to think about as we go forward, because this is definitely, um, it's, it's a little bit ambiguous about how we're supposed to take all this. So let's begin. Uh, four disturbing questions for the book of Esther. Number one, why don't these Jews, that is Mordecai and Esther, seem to value adherence to the Mosaic law? Why is it that they don't seem to value adherence to the Mosaic law? It, it really is, it's jarring to read this book in the context of the Old Testament, where the food laws and the commitment of God and worship and um, sexual chastity, the, all these things are so front and center, and then they just seem to be tossed out the window as we enter into uh, the book of Esther. And then secondly, and related to that, why does it seem as if Mordecai and Esther are excited about the contest. The, she's being put at terrible risk when she goes into this situation. As we're going to see, she's going to get into more risk as she goes forward. Why does it seem as if they're so committed or in favor of it? Number three, for the fathers. I'm a father, I read this text. Does Mordecai seem to be acting like a good dad? Man! I, maybe it's just me. I don't, I'm, not, I'm just not sure. If, if Alice grows up and she's like 21 or 22 and they still have the show on and she says, Dad, I'm trying out for The Bachelor. <laughs> I'm, first, I'm going to know that I've failed as a father. Um, and, uh, and second, I'm going to look at her and be like, Alice... Don't you know you're perfect? Don't you know that God made you just the way you are and you don't need cameras and lights and to climb over top of 24 other girls to be the one? If you could see you the way I see you, you wouldn't ever think about doing this. And I just want to shake Mordecai And be like, this isn't what good dads do, man. Good dads don't tell their girls, ah, don't even worry about church, yo. It's fine. Who cares? Right? Good dads don't send their girls into situations like this. The last question, and probably the most obvious where is God? Where is Yahweh God? faithful protector of the Israelites in the midst of all that is going on. Okay. I'll try and, try and deal with these. All right. Number one. 
Uh, you know, the question of why don't these Jews seem to value adherence to the Mosaic law? And I put up here, culture and Christianity as a slow-boiled frog. You've, you've heard this, the, it's a cute little um, illustration where if you want to boil a frog, uh, you put it in a pot of water, and then you just slowly increase the temperature, right? And so the, the frog's like, ooh, I like this. Yes, I like this. Ooh, it's so nice, so warm. And then pretty soon passes out and dies. The idea being that the slow change of the wa- temperature of the water gets the frog to forget what the situation is, and eventually costs the frog its life. Well, I want to suggest to you, and we talked about this a few weeks ago, that as the culture uh, changes, it's slow over time how culture changes. And it's hard for you to recognize whether or not the culture that you're in is completely apostate, or if it's still, you know, kind of Christian. Um, or if it's still really Christian. It's Christian in these ways, not Christian in those. And it's really hard to know what the temperature of the water around you is. And I wonder if Mordecai, we mentioned at the very beginning, Mordecai is the son of this guy, the son of that guy, the son of that guy. He and his people have been in Susa. They've been in the foreign pagan capital for so long. The man's completely forgotten what it means. And I wonder, I wonder if maybe the issue here is that they're getting slow boiled. And so they forget the importance of adherence to the Mosaic law. They forget that, that they shouldn't be excited about this contest. It looks like an easy access to the kind of power and influence that they need, and so they're like, let's just do it. Let's just do it. They don't realize that they've become so completely accustomed to the culture that they've lost it. Uh, number two, you can't choose your culture, only your responses to it. You know, I kind of made it out like Mordecai's sort of a jerk there. Well, to be fair, Mordecai is probably one of the Jewish leaders in the community. He's probably one of the wise men of the community. And he's probably under a lot of pressure. And he's in a situation where there aren't a lot of good answers. He's a part of an oppressed minority, a minority that, um, as we'll see in the course of, of the book, is going to come under direct violent threat. And he's looking for any out he can find. He can't choose the fact that he was born in Susa, a part of this small community. The only thing he can choose is how he's going to respond to it. And so even though I'm a little bit, you know, about his parenting, I think I can understand it. But this is the real deal here. Number three and number four. Mom, go ahead and put them up together. God is not scared of getting messy. God is not stopped by our sin. Where is God in the midst of all that is going on? Well, what's crazy is the book of Esther suggests that God's right in the middle of all of this. I mean, it's, Mordecai is going to come up and say, I mean, the most famous quote from Esther, it's going to come up. He's like, hey, Esther, Hadassah, daughter, maybe you showed up here for just such a time as this. Maybe God's out there behind the scenes and he's getting his hands dirty. Maybe God's getting a little messy. Maybe, maybe God's commitment to his people is so pure, so powerful, and so unstoppable that he is not willing to let them go even when they seem to be so far off from him. You know, it's interesting. Uh, the Hesed, right? Haggai the eunuch Hesed for Esther. 
the king, Ahasuerus of Xerxes, has said for Esther, faithful commitment. And, and I noticed, I, I noted, that's the word for God to his people. Isn't it interesting? Isn't it interesting the most powerful, powerful people in the empire suddenly have faithful commitment to this one woman, this one poor Jewish girl, who is really a symbol for all of Israel. Maybe it's the case. Maybe it's the case that God's out there behind the scenes dealing with pagan rulers this and, and crazy kings and contests that, and yet he's expressing, expressing his undying loyalty to his people. Uh, you know, all throughout the prophets, um, God is pictured as being behind the scenes working for people like you know, Cyrus the Great to get the Jews out of Babylon. It, God's running him. God's, he's a puppet master. And these people who think they have power, who think they have influence, really are the pawns of God. Maybe that's happening again, even in the midst of a crazy, sinful, messy, gross situation. Maybe God's up there saying, you know what? I don't care. I don't care how far off you've gone, how much you've forgotten me, how little you contact me. I don't care because I love you. I've always loved you and I'm never going to stop it. I'm never going to stop loving you. And I don't care if you do these, if you make these compromises and you forget these things. I am still with you and I will never give up on you. And I'm going to work through you even though you don't deserve it. You know, we, we live in a world that is a meritocracy, or at least it's supposed to be, where the smartest and the best are the ones who rise to the top, and they're the ones who get the great positions, and they're the ones who make the most money, and they're the ones who get the most fame, and we assume that's how the universe works. God says no. God says no. I don't care if I have the most apostate, farthest off, crazy Jews in the whole empire. It doesn't matter to me. I am still going to use them, because it's not about them. It's not about what they've done or how holy they are. It's about me and who I am and how holy I am, how committed I am to them. And I will never, ever back off from that. We should be encouraged by this story, friends, not because it's a beautiful fairy tale, but because it's like the real world that we live in where it's corrupted and it's dirty and it's messy and it's hard to deal. And yet we see that God doesn't back off. God doesn't give up. God lives and works and battles and fights in the midst of it. And even if you're so far off the path that you don't look like a Christian at all, that doesn't mean that God's not going to use you to save his people. And that, I think, is where God is in the midst of all that is going on. Let's pray. Father, sometimes it doesn't seem like there's any real fairy tales. It doesn't seem like there's easy to locate good guys and bad guys. It doesn't seem like everything makes a lot of sense. God, the world's a messy place. It's the kind of place um, where the mud and the dirt rubs off on us and uh, it corrupts us and it changes us. And yet, God, you don't give up. You wade right into the middle of it. You roll up your sleeves and you get dirty with us. 
and you execute your will in spite of it. God, if that's who you are, we trust that, we, that you can clean us from whatever mud we've got. You can salvage us from any, whatever situation we're in, whatever context, whatever compromises we've made. We know that you can use us and you can purify us. There are no limits on your commitment. There are no limits on your love. God, that is our hope. That is our prayer today. Let there be no limits. Let there be no constraints on your loyalty and your love to this people right now. Draw us back where we've gone far and make us instruments for your purpose. We thank you that you are a loyal, merciful God. And that characterizes you above all else. In your son's name we pray. Amen.